Hello, kindred friends, and welcome to the Radical Emergence podcast, where we're having conversations at the edge of transformation. We are your hosts. I'm Dr. Jen Pierrich, and with me is my friend, co-host, and co-collaborator, Dr. Sally Adams-Jones. Please check out our bios in the show notes where you will find links to our work, websites, and can find ways to connect with us. If you're not already following, hit that subscribe button, ring that bell, and join our mailing list so you can stay up to date on new episodes as they drop. Hello, everybody. Sally here. This exciting project consists of about 26 episodes in all dedicated to better defining and understanding transformation on all its levels of reality. That's personal, social, as well as ecological. We're going to ask, what is transformation? Why bother? Why do we need it? And what does it feel like or look like? We'll also ask, can we induce it or perhaps accidentally block it? These are really important questions for growth. We draw not only on our hard-won life experience, we are also transdisciplinarians. So what the heck is that? Well, it means we want to understand transformation from as many lenses as possible, including formal academic disciplines and discourses, art, media, and popular culture. Importantly, We draw from our living experience. So we are experts, so to speak, but mostly in just one small but highly critical area, our own suffering and the medicines that we've both used to transform our own lives. So to this end, we've also added decades of committed practices as well as formal degrees including specific in-depth studies in the mechanisms of transformation. Because we needed to understand this healing journey for ourselves. Does this entitle us to help others? You bet. Absolutely. Because it is by sharing our stories, knowledge, and direct experience that we offer sane, sober, practical tools for living on the ground of life. So welcome. Strap in, hang on, and enjoy the ride as we deep dive into a universe of transformation. Welcome back. Jen and I are really excited to have this two-weekly conversation with you. And we're quite a ways into the series already. So I'll just briefly sum up a couple of things to make sure we're all on the same page. So this podcast is about transformation, which is a massive topic. We'll never even cover it in the 26 episodes. But so far, we've tried to define the actual process, what that is, and what is it that's changing? So Jen and I have established it's a field. The whole shebang is transforming, not just us, not just our identity, which on the human scale, that is what is transforming, but the whole thing. So there's this beautiful orchestrated system of change and we're playing inside that field. So learning how to navigate it is important and it's not easy. Change is never easy. It's often painful, and we're going to cover some of that today in our conversation. But let's just say, so far we've covered a lot of ground, and I would suggest that you go back and watch if you're feeling that this is a complex topic. We've tried to make it as simple as possible. We've looked at the the history of of the evolution of the universe, how that is change. We've looked at the fractal nature of human change. We've looked at the parts and the wholes and how the holonic nature of the human and the whole shebang 
is transformation itself. So let's unpack this a little bit further today. Today, we're going to look at how we change. How does transformation happen? The modes. There's quite a few. So we're going to focus on several important ones. And we will unfold this topic over the next 20 episodes. So there's no hurry. So why would we even do this? It's never comfortable. We're going to look at how uncomfortable transformation is. And there's some reasons for that. Because how we transform is from this tight little bud. We've got buds here, tight little narcissistic bud when a baby is born to slowly incorporating more and more awareness and care through stages of development to include our family, our community, our nation, and our world, and our cosmology. So that was our previous episode. That's definitely worth watching. But that's a painful process of expansion. And I want to quote Anais Nin. She was a famous French-American novelist, and uh, she said this, the day will come when the risk to remain tight in a bud is more painful than the risk it takes to blossom. So that's kind of sometimes the choices we face on our journey through life is, is it more comfortable to stay the same or is it not working? Is it painful where I am and do I need to change? So some of the modes we're going to look at today are suffering and pain. We're going to keep that to last. It's, a, it's an uncomfortable topic. And we're going to start off by looking at the body itself and the hormonal changes over a lifetime and how we need structure for a good, solid physical structure in order to hold this container of transformation. What does that look like? And in the second part, we're going to look at learning as transformation because the whole thing is learning, actually. Even suffering is learning learning how to have a solid, healthy routine in order to build a structure that holds transformation is learning. It's all learning. And then in the last part, we'll look at suffering. But there's a fourth part, which is creativity. It's a super important aspect, but we're going to deal with that in several episodes later. So we're not going to look at that in much detail today. So let's just look at this first mode, which is the mode of the hormonal changes or the chemistry and the biology of transformation. So as we said in an earlier episode, we start off in the uterus as an XX. And at about six weeks, 50% of those female zygotes have the XY switched on and become male. So even at six weeks, there's this dramatic change. It's amazing. It's beautiful. We get activated through hormones. And there's this cascade of hormones that develops this beautiful little fetus. We don't even know, actually, gynecologists aren't even aware of the full system of hormonal cascade that triggers the birth. There's another huge hormonal shift and the baby is born at exactly nine months. It's quite incredible. So that event is transformation through hormones. But through the rest of our lives, subconsciously, we're not even aware of it. We're transforming through this beautiful symphony of hormones at about 12 to 14, there's puberty that is precipitated through a whole lot of activation of new hormones, estrogen, progesterone, testosterone. These come flooding into the body and we're activated. We did nothing to start that cascade. We just turned 12, 
and suddenly our bodies were changing. Then we go through life responding to that. It's a very uh, exciting navigation of other people's hormones. We're moving in this field of activation, often sexual and full of desire and Biology is orchestrating us to procreate. All we do is respond. So this is fascinating. We are changing throughout our lives. At this level, we're going to talk about other levels, conscious levels of change, but this is the unconscious levels that we we don't do anything. We just participate. It's beautiful. We're orchestrated by evolution. So we go through adulthood, and in another episode, we're going to look at the stages that we can go through of maturity. And suddenly at midlife, there's a whole new precipitation of changes in our hormones. Our estrogen levels drop as women and progesterone, and we go through menopause. For men, the testosterone levels drop and they go through andropause. There's not a lot written about this because for some sad reason, there's a lot of shame involved around the midlife crisis and the changes in the body and the fact that we're no longer as sexual as we were. Somehow there's shame attached to that, that we can't control that part of our body anymore. So we're being orchestrated all the way through our life with hormonal changes. And of course, then we go through midlife crisis and there's a meaning crisis all the way through life. The meaning has been changing. And I'd like to look at that later in today's episode, how that's one of the things that is transforming for us. So there's a lot of grief and sadness at midlife because our bodies aren't functioning and we'd become used to that. We'd become used to a full sexual life and suddenly that's changed. So new meaning has to arise. There's nothing we can do to prevent that. The hormones dictate our levels of change through our life at this level of biology. And then, of course, things keep changing. And eventually, we can start um, changing in a way that we can't consciously manage anymore, and we require care. And then we die. So that's the life cycle that we try so hard to stop and prevent this process. We do all sorts of things to ourselves, um, resisting change at this level. We get cosmetic surgery. We become addicted to exercise. We do all sorts of things. We try to freeze our bodies now to try and prevent ourselves from ever dying. So I would like to hand it back to you, Jen, and say this is quite a miracle, this hormonal cascade through our whole life that we literally are, um, we're like little marionette puppets. So there's this level of subconscious life that we live that is below our level of awareness. It just happens, and we do our best to respond in the context that we're in. Um, So that is one level of transformation. But we're going to look at other levels, like how do we consciously participate? But on that physical level, we know that we need a good structure to manage those changes. We need good nutrition. We need good sleep cycles. The circadian rhythm is super important. We need good movement to keep the chemicals moving and flushing and cleaning out. We need good relationships to have oxytocin and serotonin and dopamine because managing the feel-good chemicals is part of that. It's a, it's a energy management. On the other hand, um, we can get stuck in other hormones like cortisol and adrenaline and the fight and flight. So learning how to manage and regulate the hormonal and nervous system is the basics of managing a life full of transformation. Aren't 
aren't we just a symphony of hormones? I love that. I love the um, the image of us as marionettes. As you were talking, I was thinking of um, <clears throat> an orchestra conductor um, and how we're just sort of being moved all the time in these unconscious ways that we're not even aware of, but that are really determining so much of our lives uh, and just trying to bring in awareness to that um, and how we encourage that. And like you say, how so many of us end up work trying to stave off, right? That progression of, of, of hormonal influences that, that happen to us and how we can end up suffering when we try to hit the pause button um, on those ways of transformation. So, um, I like to go a little bit deeper now um, into ways that we participate with modes of transformation. Um, I'm going to organize this into two parts. Um, in this first part, I just want to talk about some of the modes of transformation you're probably familiar with. Um, and one thing that's really important to point out is that none of these modes of transformation um, happen in isolation. They are all interconnecting with each other, right? So when I talk about one mode of transformation, um, we need to also look at how that mode of transformation intersects with other modes of transformation. Um, so let's just briefly define what we mean by mode. And a mode is very simply just a way that something happens, right? So a mode of transformation is um, are the ways that transformation appears. Um, so for example, as uh, Sally was was describing, we have these, these chemical in influences. So a, a chemical modes of transformation, the hormonal um, cascade that we're all experiencing, um, there are the, uh, there's the transformation of atoms and molecules, right? And particles, which come together to create chemical reactions. Um, we all have the experience of being in the kitchen, right? And mixing ingredients and we create transformation, right? So for example, like buttermilk, um, is, created by uh, introducing an acid to a fat. And you have a transformative chemical reaction of curdling, right? So, um, you know, one really easy way, just as an aside, to make um, plant-based buttermilk is to take apple cider vinegar, which is a, an acid, and introduce it, stir it up into um, oat milk or soy milk and let it sit. And you have a chemical reaction that takes the form of a buttermilk and you get that, that lumpy texture, right? So that's, uh, that's a mode of transformation, a chemical transformation. Then there are physical transformations with which Sally's um, touched on. And there's also uh, mechanical transformations through heat and pressure. Um, diamonds are formed, transformed under great amounts of pressure. Um, there's the molding of plastic. That is a form, a mode of physical transformation. Um, we have biological transformation as a mode. Um, we've had plants and um, bodily reproduction. Um, we have many ways that biological systems are transformed. Um, another mode of transformation, um, are digital and technological transformations. So we have the internet and software and hardware. Um, we, ex we engage with transformation every day if we are using the internet, right? Because the internet that we had even just five years ago is very different than the internet we have today. And we're experiencing that transformation, but most of us are not really conscious of how much things have changed just in a very short time. I saw a meme recently that said something like, you know, I'm old enough to uh, remember what it was like to have dial-up internet and yet be uh, frustrated when something doesn't instantly download, right? Well, that meme is, is, is holding just the power of transformation that we experience just 
um, in terms of technology, right? Um, we're going to have a, a huge episode on creative transformation, but I just want to point this out as another mode of transformation. Um, you know, our, our imaginations are incredibly uh, transformative. We have transformation in art and literature and in music, um, even in the span of one song, right? You experience transformation where in the beginning of the song, it's kind of, you know, you know, kind of down tempo and lower. And then there's a crescendo building within the, the song itself. And by the end, there's this whole emotional response that we've had from just the song. And so we can see here in this mode of creative transformation, um, how that works just in our everyday experience. And, you know, all artists, I'm an artist, Sally's an artist, uh, musicians, we're all very interested in transformation because what we're looking to do is create a transformative experience in our listener, in our, in our viewer, right, of our art. So even if artists are not necessarily aware of their interest in transformation, they definitely are leaning into uh, the transformative experience. Another mode of transformation is social transformation. And um, we see this in the U.S., um, the transformation from the abolition of slavery to women's suffrage to the civil rights movement. Um, now we have climate justice and um, uh, racial equality. We see that there have been transformative arcs happening in our social world. And even while we have progress in certain areas, we go backwards right, in certain areas. So we see, um, you know, even as we move forward, we also regress in some ways as well. Um, and finally, I just want to point to the last mode of transformation, which we are all experiencing all the time, which is personal transformation. And in the mode of personal transformation, we have um, um, spiritual change, um, we have emotional change, cognitive change. All of these are about transformation of the individual. But as we spoke about in the last episode, or was it the episode before, but one of the previous episodes, that transformation um, on a personal level is fractal, right? So when even if we experience transformation on a personal level, it's always going to uh, extrapolate into our collective, right? Because we are interconnected um, with the world, right? So as we transform, the world transforms. And so personal transformation shows up in all kinds of ways. We've all experienced, you know, the loss of a job or maybe a retirement, maybe the ending of a relationship. Um, we are all experiencing these kinds of modes of personal transformation all the time. In spiritual transformation, we have mystical experiences and peak experiences. Uh, we have dark nights of the soul. Uh, we have what uh, Stanislav Grof called spiritual emergencies. We have deepening of our spiritual uh, self-awareness. We have integration and disintegration. And as Sally was talking about and is going to go into deeper, we have suffering, which is a very powerful expression a mode of transformation um there's not only the transformation that we are conscious of in all of these ways that i've just described but like sally was talking about with our uh symphony of hormones um that were being orchestrated we also have um transformation happening on an unconscious level right and in jung carl jung was very interested in what's happening what, what is the transformative experience happening inside of our unconscious mind that we're not even aware of, right? And so um, his work was about confronting our fears and doing shadow work and kind of working within that unconscious realm for spiritual transformation, right? So there's it's transformation is happening both on a conscious realm and on an unconscious realm. And Finally, one way that um, one mode of transformation that appears for all of us, and we're going to go into this uh, deeper, but I just want to touch in as I look at this whole arc of many modes of transformation is um, 
cognitive transformation. So learning, the acquisition of knowledge. Um, some of the biggest transformations in my life personally have been through um, education. I uh, was a high school dropout. I dropped out when I was 16. And, you know, it wasn't necessarily because I couldn't learn, um, but I just wasn't uh, I just wasn't in a place in my life where I, I could focus on uh, learning. I was really driven by my trauma at that time. Um, but as I started to mature and develop and grow, I leaned into learning as a way to transform myself. So one very powerful mode of transformation, and we're going to go into this deeper in a moment, is through through learning. Um, and so it's really important that we can be aware of these different modes and being aware of them that, you know, it develops our capacity for progress, right? Inner and outer progress and development and creativity and change and adapting to um, an ever transforming world. Um, we develop resilience when we can participate with these modes of transformation consciously. So beautifully said, Jen. Um, so many, it's like a smorgasbord. You know, we, we live in a context that is continuously pressurizing us and massaging us to keep changing. And I love the way you said, you talked about the diamond changing under pressure. So I think this pressure is, is really a beautiful um, energy that comes from our context and we can choose to respond or not. So there's always this relationship between me and my context. Sometimes the context isn't working. Sometimes I'm not up to meeting the demands of the context. So there's a relationship. Transformation is always in a response to something that's not really functioning. So we can block it, we can resist it, or we can consciously work with it and facilitate it. Um, and that's what learning is. So we've talked about the subconscious ways at the level of the body. It's talked now about the mind, and we'll talk more about the spirit coming up. So, so let's look at how the mind transforms and, and how we consciously learn to adapt. That's kind of Darwinian in a way. If we don't, if we don't adapt, we die. But that's that's why we spend so much of our tax dollars on our children's education. We want them to function and to learn, um, and and to be able to embody the history of learning that humanity has, the the body of wisdom, because we know that's good for us. Without that. We don't function as well. So learning is a really, really important mode, and it almost covers all the modes. Um, adapting is a way of learning. So I was just thinking, I'm so glad you said that about when you were younger, Jen, and, and you had pressure from your circumstances that, that meant you, you, you didn't focus fully on your learning at that time, but how you turned to learning later so did I. Like I discovered that every time I was having a pressurized circumstance in my life uh, and some deep traumas, I was alone at the age of 17. My family suddenly dispersed and broke up. And I decided that the only way to manage this is to go and focus my mind on some learning. And I did that throughout my life, actually. It's part of why I suppose you and I both have a PhD is that we discovered that learning is really helpful. So I, I look back at high school, for example, one of the most transformative learning processes for me was joining the debate society. And I look back now and I think that was cognitive learning about how to take the opposite perspective. And you and I have spoken about this, Jen, about it's uh, the paradox of always trying to look at the opposite. That's one of the cognitive capacities from learning is learning to look at things from someone else's perspective 
or from multiple perspectives that comes with maturity and uh, working with different points of view. Because we'll notice that when we resist doing this, we always try to justify our own position. And that's not always functional for me or for the whole. Now, I've lived through an almost civil war in South Africa when I was young. And there was an outdated position that white people were superior and it wasn't functioning for anybody else, not even white people, but they would resist the change. It almost came to civil war before they could adapt. The pressure, like the diamond, came internationally. It came from within, from black people whose suffering was really very real. And eventually change happened and civil war was averted at the last minute. Um, so we had two amazing humans, F.W. de Klerk and Nelson Mandela, who could see the multiple perspectives and they navigated that journey. So in that society, we all had to learn about the other's perspective. Um, and as you said, Jen, it's happening now as well. Uh, since the women's movement, 50 years ago, it started, women started adapting and learning new skills and became much more functional in the workplace and with bigger capacities. And now men are needing to learn how to manage that. And there's resistance and there's pain and there's a lot of suffering going on and confusion. So we see this with society all the time. There, you can either resist change, which creates a lot of suffering, and pretty much the word conservative can be associated with, I want to conserve the way that life is, which is all good and well if it's functioning well for everybody. If it's not, then we have to move beyond conserving everything and moving into a new learning, a transition. And that's often painful. It's always painful. And a mentor of mine, Barbara Marx Hubbard, who I worked with for a number of years, said that evolution is always precipitated by a crisis of some kind. So... Before I hand it back to you, Jen, about learning, I just wanted to share with you, there's a fellow called Jack Mesereau. He was the father of transformative learning, and he broke down this process of transformation into 10 stages. And I'll just be brief. If you want to Google him, listeners, and he's worth Googling, he described an arc of transformation. This is briefly what he described that we start off with a dilemma or a crisis. Something's not working in the environment or within ourselves. And then we go through a process of assessment, what's not working, process of revision, how can we make this work, exploration, then an action plan. And to do that action of change, we need some skills acquisition. What are the new skills we need to make this adaptation to be more inclusive? Then we need to practice that thing. And I want to speak more about practice. And we need the confidence to put that plan into action and to integrate the change. So that's a whole arc of learning. But basically, if we want to facilitate and work consciously with change, we need practices. And that needs a transformative curriculum. So that's why educators took over some aspects of transformation because it is learning. Psychologists took over some aspects of transformation because it does deal with trauma and suffering. And spiritual teachers took over some aspects because of, and we will discuss this later, trying to access states or peak experiences, as you mentioned, Jen. Peak experiences change us radically. So each little discipline took on an aspect of transformation and specialized in that. I have worked extensively with practices because I've really needed to stabilize this container through the changes from my contexts, which have been multiple and very pressured. And I will just say briefly, Jen, 
I think the most important practice for me, apart from debate club when I was little, and all the creative practices, and we'll speak about those, which I went into professionally, has been meditation and and yoga, the embodied practice of learning what my mind is doing in any given moment. So transformative curricula are one of the modes of transformation, and they're very important. And that indicates when we're beginning to consciously work with our transformation on purpose to cultivate transformation as opposed to resist or conserve or stay the same, even though we're suffering. I love how you um, perfectly described how the intersections between the modes just there in your home country, um, how uh, Mandela was able to use that multi-perspectival thinking, which is a cognitive mode, intersecting with the social transformation mode and how that created a huge, huge transformation, right? That impacted, you know, an entire country. And um, so it's really important that as we, that to remember that as we're talking about these modes, none of it is happening in a vacuum, that all the modes are interacting with each other and likewise, when we are um, engaging and participating with the modes using the practices, um, we also can engage from that kind of multi-perspectival um, place where we're engaging with practices and modes in this sort of very dynamic way, um, I think is a, a good way to put it, um, interacting dynamically, multimodal um, type of engagement. Um, so let's go deeper into uh, some, some practices. How do we engage with these modes of transformation um, in ways that increase our state of being so that we're moving with transformation, right? As opposed to against it. How are we encouraging and engaging with transformation? Um, <clears throat> In my work and in my, my personal experience, the number one way that I participate with transformation is through increased self-awareness. And simply put, self-awareness is my ability to know myself. That's all it is. So the deeper I know myself, the more I'm participating with myself on the inside the more I'm able to participate with practices and modes of transformation in a way that is generative, right? That is encourages my growth and evolution and on all levels. Um, and so self-knowing and uh, being in a conscious engagement with, um, with transformation um, allows me to um, work with it. And if I have a particularly fixed way of being in the world or a fixed identity, well, that's going to come up in and, and be in opposition with the ever transformative world that I'm living in, right? And I'm going to end up suffering more um, than if I'm moving with transformation. So the goal of all of the various practices that I'm going to outline is to encourage a deeper understanding of myself and my identities, my beliefs, my trauma, um, my epigenetic inheritance, my values, my goals, my dreams. All of these things are really amplified when I participate with modes of transformation consciously. And a great way to do that is to seek out new experiences, to step outside of my comfort zone, um, to challenge my assumptions and my beliefs. Um, because when I do that, when I, when I try to um, experience the world in a new way, uh, try to do something differently, I'm opening myself up to that flow, to that ever transformative field of transformation, right? So I'm looking for practices that open me up to the field of transformation. 
Um, as Sally mentioned, one of the most powerful ways we can do that is through meditation and yoga, um, but also through dance and um, sports. A lot of people have transformative experiences while they're traveling. Going to a new place is, is a very transformative um, practice. Uh, we have hobbies and art. Um, another way, that a practice that's really important for transformation is self-care, self-acceptance. Self-acceptance is an incredibly powerful practice of transformation um, because as we spoke about in one of the previous episodes, there's a paradox that the more we accept ourselves, the more we transform. So a great practice of, um, of transformation is just to accept ourselves or show up for ourselves, right? Bring that love on, on the inside that we need and deserve. Um, another thing is um, in encouraging resets and restarts. Um, just kind of taking an attitude of welcoming a restart or a reset is incredibly transformative. Being able to hit that reset button, um, even when you're uh, in a situation where you're trying to self-regulate or co-regulate with somebody, just the capacity to, in the moment, say, to breathe deeply and say, I'm resetting myself right now. That is a transformative practice that I just cannot encourage enough. Of course, that's really challenging when we're all caught up, you know, if we're having a fight with somebody and we're really caught up in a particular perspective or we have a certain identity that we're trying to protect, it's really hard to hit that reset button. But doing so invites the transformation as opposed to working against it. Um, another way that we can participate and engage with transformation is by making uh, new connections right? With people who are uh, um, doing or participating with whatever it is we want to transform into. So we can seek out new connections. Um, you know, this is networking. Networking is a really powerful way to participate with transformation because you are exposing yourself to people um, and circumstances and situations who are doing what you want to do and just being around people who are participating with the mode of transformation that you're interested in will transform you. Um, so yeah, um, I just want to end this as I talk about participating with, 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 uh, in various practices. Um, one of the easiest ways we can participate with modes of transformation is by welcoming discomfort um, and uncertainty. Um, because the more we approach ourselves as beings of constant transformation and the more we welcome and expect the discomfort, again, the more we are going to be moving with transformation, right? So um, just to go back over this, we have modes of transformation, which are the ways uh, transformation um, appear. And then we have the practices of transformation, which are ways that we can engage with those modes. Um, and we, what we're looking to do is to participate and engage with those modes of transformation consciously from a place of um, being in relationship with ourselves and inner knowing so that when these points of resistance come forward, we can meet them consciously as opposed to um, keeping them in an unconscious place where, you know, we have, um, you know, it, we have more issues that come up. We have more discomfort, right? So if we just move with transformation, expecting the discomfort and being like, yep, this is going to be really uncomfortable as I move through this, it just makes it a lot easier to uh, deepen into our own growth and transformation. It's amazing, isn't it, Jen, how if you imagine an electric wire that's got a little kink in it uh, and that's where the resistance is and it gets hot and that wire actually gets red and can actually ignite. So when we unravel that wire and the flow can occur, 
it's it doesn't produce the heat or the potential fire. So, yeah, a lot of it is to do with trying to work with our flow and not blocking what life wants to, to do through us. Um, yeah, this thing about practices, I, not all of them are uncomfortable, that's for sure. And that's why we do practices in containers where there's community and there's support and I'm all over practices as opposed to suffering as a way of teaching, but we have 50-50. And one of my favorite practices is gardening. And I'll explain why, because it's at the body, mind, spirit level. It, It feeds all those parts of me. I get to move and dig and put my hands in the dirt. I get to learn about systems and how interdependent we are, and that I couldn't exist without the water, soil, and sunshine. I get to have my spirit fed with the beauty of watching the seasons transform through the garden, all the changes that happen. And my love of beauty is fed, and it's so creative. You get to construct this garden that works best for everybody, including the insects, and it's ecological. So people overlook the beautiful practices that are simple because we don't even think of them as practice. They're just part of our lives, but they are transformative. Gardeners are the most excited bunch of people on the planet. Um, And you can see their whole body is revivified and and they're kept young and they're kept connected to to nature. So the thing about about transformation is that we are embodied and we have certain needs. And I've been trying to put my finger on this one mode of suffering, and I'm going to go into it a little bit deeper, even though suffering is only part of our life. Um, It's the one that we avoid the most. That's been our whole conversation today is where are we resisting? Because it's easy to do the practices that are rewarding, like the art, the yoga, the gardening, all the practices, the Tai Chi, the singing, the choral work. Those are the easy ones. So I'm going to look at the more challenging way that we transform. It's not comfortable. So Abraham Maslow was one of the early positive psychologists. He noticed that we have a pyramid of needs. And as we've been talking about, Jenna, they're physical, they're psychological and cognitive, and they're spiritual. And he decided they're in a pyramid. So we first need to meet those physical needs of safety, shelter, food, sexuality. Once those are met, we feel safe enough to meet the other needs, which are relational, belonging, love. Those are very real needs, and they affect our body chemistry and and help us to feel stable and happy. Once we've met those, we have energy left over. We can meet our self-esteem needs, which is skills mastery of certain capacities in our life. You can see this with little kids. They get so excited when they master a task. And that is a real need that stays with us for our whole lives. Mastery. It builds self-esteem. And some of that is cognitive, learning stuff. That's the learning part. And finally, he said, we have the self-actualization needs and the self-transcendence needs. And those needs are becoming who we really are, more and more authentic. So those are real needs too, to be able to express who we really are, which is a diversity of beings. I'm different from Jen. The listeners, each one of you is different from me. And so that authentic self-expression is a real need that comes on board as we mature. And then there's self-transcendent needs, which are spiritual needs, service, charity, mentoring, eldering, giving back to our community before we leave this mortal coil. So what is suffering then? This is the question I've been looking at this week. It's when those needs aren't met. And 
I honor all of them. I've lived in countries where people are suffering daily because they can't eat enough. There's no fresh water. There's no sanitation. Their, their belonging needs can't be met because they're on the edge of a civil war uh, and they feel like they need to either leave or they're in fight or flight and they can't really put down roots. Um, schools. Some people have a real thirst for learning. And when they can't meet that need, there's actually real suffering. They have all this potential and they can't release it. They can't individuate and actively participate as fully as they could in life. That might sound like a privilege, but it's a real need. Um, and I've, I've done research in communities where that need is as strong as a food and shelter need. So I don't actually believe they're in pyramid. I believe that they're fractals and they occur at the same time. Man cannot live by bread alone. And I've worked with communities that are really um, struggling to alleviate their poverty situation, but they're actively creating. They're doing artwork. They've got dance. They've got poetry because that's a real need. So when we say, how are we transforming? That's one of the ways we can understand it is we're trying to transform the suffering at each level and meet those needs. And that is a very practical, real model that we can look at the world because suffering is not going away. People's needs are not being met. The number of refugees has doubled in the last 10 years. You know, we don't have to look far to see that when people's needs are not met, they cannot learn. They struggle to transform because their whole day is around how do I get my next meal? So transformation is very dependent on that pyramid. Um, and as we said, it is physical, emotional, cognitive, and spiritual. Uh, and it is a real privilege to be able to do all of those. There's no doubt about it that I don't understand karma, why some people get to meet all those needs and some people don't. It's a, it's a very difficult thing to take a look at the distribution of privilege. So I just wanted to end this, this section on suffering by looking at how some of the great teachers have looked at suffering. Um, for example, the Buddha, he said that life is suffering, that it's, we suffer because we're full of desires and attachments. So that's one way of looking at it. He felt to transform was to overcome suffering. There have been other great teachers. Patanjali from the yoga tradition said that suffering is our constant choices for and against life that we're in duality and we're constantly struggling with pleasure and pain and choosing one or the other. That is suffering. In therapy, we look at how, now this is a new form, we try to understand suffering through a trauma lens, which we will spend a couple of sessions looking at. Because when we are laden with trauma, our energy is frozen and we can't transform. So we'll look at that. Feminism said that suffering was about a power distribution that was not equitable. So feminism used the lens of looking at oppression from dominator hierarchies and that that was causing suffering and preventing certain groups of people from transforming to their full potential. It's a very, very important lens. If we can't meet our full potentials, we suffer. And in a dominator hierarchy, certain groups cannot reach their potential. Liberation psychology said that suffering is caused by a lack of access to certain opportunities, and that was economic. So Marxism said that as well, that the distribution of capital meant some groups could never transform and meet their potential. So all the isms have been extremely important in our understanding of who can transform openly and, and, and freely 
and who cannot because there's an oppressive lid on them economically, psychologically, in every way. So recently we've gone through a beautiful understanding of liberation and what that means. It means the freedom to transform and to relieve the suffering of certain groups because dominator hierarchies impose suffering without even knowing it. So the job of all the isms was to make this new understanding of suffering clear and to articulate the glass ceilings that prevent transformation collectively. So we're going through some interesting times and each great teacher has had an understanding of what suffering is and that has evolved over time. And we can really learn a lot from each of those teachers. Jesus really said that he, he was, he, he said that we need to address suffering in a huge way, the orphans, the widows, and the poor. He was all over that. Like liberating people economically and physically meant that you could come into your full potential. So we're understanding this, this complex fractal of the human who is physical, has, has physical needs that keeps transforming who is emotional, we have love and relationship needs. Isolation is suffering. We know that. The the aging population is really suffering from isolation. They don't do physically well. It's cognitive. We need to be able to expand all these lines of intelligence that we have to reach our full potential. And when there's ceilings on those, we suffer. And it's spiritual. And so we have practices for that to really develop our spiritual needs as well. I love how you brought forward gardening as an example of a practice that it hits all those uh, levels of reality. And what's interesting is, you know, they've shown that soil is transformative on so many levels. It transform it's it's helpful for anxiety, for depression, but it also literal soil influences your hormones, your bone density. I mean, the research is really wild about how working with soil literally transforms our body. And here, you know, this is just such a great example of how these various modes and practices are intersecting with each other. Um, and I love the idea of, of def- how you define liberation. I just think that is incredibly liberatory, just even defining it as you have. Um, one of the, the most powerful examples of transformation that I'd like to end with and that really touches me and excites me is neuroplasticity. And so much research, just like the research coming out about how soil is transforming us, so much research over the last decade has shown that trauma, especially the trauma we experience as young children, literally damages the brain. Trauma transforms the brain. Um, And that transformation impacts us for the rest of our lives. Um, and and that recognition can actually feel really defeating and disappointing to recognize, you know, what would my brain have been like? Who would I have been had I not had that deluge of adverse childhood experiences? But equally, that said, what is really exciting is that research is showing that our brains can be healed, that we can literally reorganize, recreate, and rewire our neural pathways in those same damaged places. We can create new synapses. Um, we can, there can be new neurons born in the brain. So there's a real opportunity here to reclaim 
the damaged space in our own brains with supportive care, with therapy, with gardening, with all of the practices that we've discussed with art and creativity, and most importantly, with our own radical awareness of ourselves, that we can literally heal our own brains from the inside out, right? So if we didn't particularly have um, um, particularly loving caretakers, when we were early uh, in our lives, that we can be those kind of caretakers for ourselves, that we can move into ourselves and replicate that care that we didn't receive for our own selves within. And that caretaking is literally transforming our brains. And I just have to tell you, as someone with my own trauma, um, that the power and potential of healing my own damaged neural pathways and healing myself is very inspiring. It means that I have the opportunity, that we all have the opportunity to restore our minds and heal ourselves. And we've talked about this in previous episodes that we are naturally healing beings, right? When you get a cut, your body immediately starts the process of healing. We are self-healing beings. And that same analogy applies to healing our minds. Our capacity for healing is one of the most profound transformative gifts of our lives. So I want to encourage anybody who's listening this to reclaim the power and potential of healing your own mind you know, explore the various modes of transformation and the practices of transformation that we've explored today so that we can move with transformation rather than against it. Because it's when we move against it that we suffer. I just get so inspired, Jen. And I, I don't know if that's part of my karma. I don't know why I came into this life I went through a bunch of tragedies and had to learn how to how to heal myself, as you said, the healing. And then I just became totally turned on to that process and understanding it. This you can call it healing. Transformation is healing. Transformation is feeling. Transformation is understanding. Transformation is caring more and for more and more. Transformation is about building meaning as well. And I'm going to end with that. Uh, The complexity and the beauty of transformation leads me to kind of realize the universe is participatory. As you said, Jen, Jen, our brains are plastic. They're transforming all the time below the level of our consciousness. We can't see it, but it's happening all the time. Our bodies are transforming all the time. There's this cascade of hormones that dictate many of our urges and desires. The Buddha didn't know about hormones. You know, he spoke about desire. Well, now we have a much deeper understanding, and I absolutely adore his teachings and adore the teachings of Jesus who spoke about love. He didn't know about oxytocin and serotonin. We just know so much more now about these layers, the body, mind, and spirit, and how they dance together in the cosmos. So one of these, one of the ways we transform, the thing that keeps transforming through our life is meaning for us as well. The meaning keeps changing. Viktor Frankl was a a psychiatrist who was in the Nazi concentration camps. And he wrote a beautiful book about a man's search for meaning. Um, And he noticed that those who survived the camps and the torture and horrors were those who could build meaning out of their suffering. So that's how we turn the wound into the magic. That is transformational right there. That, yes. You look at the yin-yang sign, our life is more than likely going to be 50% suffering, pain, and 50% pleasure. Uh, And as you said, Jen, to expect it otherwise is suffering. 
So how do we work with that understanding of the darkness and the light and how do we create meaning out of that is the final kind of the building of a deep awareness that we belong here, that we co-create this universe with intelligent fields of energy and that it's constantly shifting and we're in a dance of meaning from birth to death. And we create that for ourselves. We create the belonging, the relationships, the meaning, despite the suffering. Yeah, so um, thank you all for listening and staying with us for this hour. It's not been easy. There's been a lot to digest. But it is so beautiful when you come to see this play, the play of life through our bodies. So I hope you'll join us again in two weeks' time. And Jen and I will be here and excited and inspired with more conversations for you on on the edge of emergence. And we'll see you next time. Take care, everybody. And thanks for joining us. So thanks for joining us. And we hope you can take away some helpful tools, perhaps some great stories and some wisdom for your own ongoing journey. Join us for our next episode where we will deep dive again into a universe of transformation.